0: Hi, everyone. David here. Thank you so much for listening to What Matters. We hope you enjoy today's show. Before we begin, just a quick word on how you can access the rest of our essential journalism on Foresight Climate and Energy. If you and maybe some of your colleagues would like premium access to the What Matters podcast and the rest of Foresight, join our global community by becoming a member. You can try us for 30 days for less than one euro a day, which will give you access to our new website and app. Just follow the link in the show notes or go to www.foresightmedia.com to find out more. Welcome to the latest episode of What Matters, the podcast from Foresight Climate and Energy that puts the energy into energy transition. My name is David Weston and joining me once again are my esteemed co-hosts Jan Rosnow from the Regulatory Assistance Project and Michaela Hull of Agora
1: Energy Vendor. Hi team, are you well? What have you been up to this week? i've been very well um i've been to copenhagen to the high temperature heat pump conference i know that's a mouthful right um wow uh, until recently i didn't even know there were such a thing as conferences on high temperature heat pumps but there were 400 people from all over the world and i actually saw a high temperature heat pump in copenhagen and it was huge six megawatts wow so i'm very happy and how high a temperature is high temperature uh, so heat pumps can go up to 200 degrees centigrade already. Wow. Uh, some manufacturers claim they can go even higher, but it's it's kind of that temperature range that is um, used in about 40 or 50% of industrial processes. Hmm. Interesting. Michaela?
2: I love it how Jan impo- impersonates heat pumps increasingly. <laughs> <laughs> and, uh, um, I've been busy. We had a big event uh, yesterday in Brussels, where Agora Energiewende presented the ideas for the uh, for climate and energy for what we call the decisive decade, or you know, the new legislative term in EU policies.
0: Fascinating. Yeah, I saw some things come out of that event. It looked really interesting. You can't open a newspaper or a news website today. Without yet another headline that has significant impact on the energy transition, whether it's geopolitical conflicts, trade wars, or yet another election, every day seems to bring new challenges, hurdles, and opportunities in our quest to reach a decarbonized economy. Joining us on the podcast today to discuss how the rapidly changing world is affecting energy and climate policymaking is Lisa Fisher, Programme Lead at Think Tank E3G. Thanks for joining us today, Lisa.
3: Hi, David. Hi, everyone. Very excited to be here.
0: Lisa before we dive into the topic on and how the world as it is is changing uh, energy policy making can you briefly tell us a little bit about maybe what e3g is uh, and the work that you do
3: yeah sure With a pleasure we are a climate change think tank Um operating globally, but with a, a big f- footprint in in Europe and uh, the US. And really what our mission is, is to create a safe climate for all, um, looking at the different, so not only the energy transition, which is what I'm focusing on, but also areas such as sustainable finance and, and risk and resilience in the transition. Um, and what what we do most of, I think, is facilitating conversations that wouldn't happen otherwise and um, making sure the right people talk to each other so we find a political Politically feasible pathway to a faster energy transition.
2: Interesting. Well, yeah. your day we are, today we are talking with each other, which is also a good combination. And I'm glad you're here with us in the podcast.
0: Before we dive into maybe 2024 and what we expect to see in the next few years going up to 2030, uh, we obviously just had COP28 at the end of last year, uh, where we saw commitments to triple renewables globally and double energy efficiency efforts. Can you maybe elaborate a little bit on the significance of this uh, tripling of renewables and its potential impact on global energy dynamics?
3: Yeah, sure. And it was, 2023 was quite a ride, wasn't it? Um and COP was really a a big finish to the year um where we saw quite a lot of the debates on 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 energy really coming to a close. Um I, it was the first time that COP28 really talked about energy specifically as a key tool to unlocking um a safe climate. Um, it was particularly interesting because it mentioned fossil fuels as a key you know, source of the problem. Um, and what it gave us, as you said, is not only a set of targets that countries need to take into account in terms of their um, forward planning, in terms of their national um, climate plans that they need to present ahead of um, COP30 in Brazil, but it also gave roots for countries to collaborate in particularly global north countries with global south countries. Um, end of this year, we really need to talk finance and money and make sure the money is on the table to help countries transition away from fossil fuels. Um, and an opening of a conversation, which I think is new that the energy transition will also require economic transition. And it was very interesting to see some countries that are fossil fuel producers like Colombia actually saying that and saying, we're ready to transition but we need more support here um, and we're sort of we're different from the Saudi Arabia's of this world. So we're really seeing a change in the conversation here. And these near-term targets that you set on tripling renewables and doubling energy efficiency give us a bit of a north star now um, to benchmark not only what the EU does and the EU really needs to be the first mover here, um, but also what the EU does in cooperation with partners all all across the globe.
1: Lisa, a cynic might say that it's very easy to adopt these targets and governments and politicians love to adopt targets because they usually uh, are um, uh, due when they're no longer in power. Um, so they're not responsible for delivery. Uh, we discussed this, I think, on previous episodes on this podcast too, you know, the the, the kind of focus of the discussion, also a cop very much on targets um, uh, and perhaps less on delivery. What, what, what do you see as the key obstacles towards meeting those pretty ambitious goals for carbon reduction, for the rollout of renewables, uh, and also other key technologies, um, uh, critical minerals, the whole suite of things. What do you see as a key sort of obstacles that are in the way? And and how do you think governments should should start thinking about those and how to address them?
3: Yeah, no, that's absolutely right. I mean, the, the good thing for the first time is that these targets are fairly near term. They're 2030 rather than 2050, right? So there's something we can work with and, and sort of measure progress much more effectively. Um, having said that, you know, you've discussed this at length on this podcast. The problem isn't the technologies available, the problem isn't the cost of the technology per se. The issue um, usually is political or is kind of are those technologies available to the right countries? At the right cost right and th- these are the things we need to fix so in terms of the politics i think all eyes indeed are on the european union now and the uk and some of the um, advanced economies like norway and canada the us that are fossil fuel producers to actually show over the course of this year they're they're serious they have plans in place to deliver on those targets right they have plans in place that we are transitioning away from fossil fuels and by the way europe is transitioning away from gas but not at the speed we need so we need to kind of really make this a topic but um, well, we
2: need- Europe is transitioning away from Russian gas from Russian gas exactly not from gas <laughs> from gas
3: <laughs> we are making progress um but yeah we ne- we're far from where we need to be um the UK absolutely needs to stop its obsession with um expanding oil and gas upstream production and how sluggish it is on on heat decarbonization so all eyes are on some of the the global north countries here now to deliver um in terms of unlocking the politics and this will create confidence. You know, China is also actually doing an awful lot already on renewables, but what what we've heard in recent Irena reports is most of the renewables are in China and 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 Europe and the US. So we need a focused conversation on how can we get more investment into renewables. And by the way, energy efficiency, energy efficiency, energy efficiency, in emerging economies so we don't bake in a, a sort of massively growing energy demand curve going forward. And these conversations will happen this year. So first, the uh, f- f- EU will do foreign affairs council conclusions that sets them up for this year. We'll have World Bank meetings and multilateral development bank meetings. They need to make sure the money is on the table. And I think that will actually unlo- unlock progress on the ground because and this last thing I'm going to say on this is countries know already that, um, over the past few years, it's been, um, it's become clear that the energy transition is actually a way of unlocking energy security and competitiveness. So that is people want this but it's or countries want this but it's not accessible to everyone
1: i mean one of the um, hurdles I see in the at least in the short term is that yeah the the price of gas that was very high of course in in late twenty one and especially in twenty twenty two has come right down you know when you look at the gas prices uh, in Europe uh, we have seen a significant decline and you may say some of the impetus to transition faster you know, what has been coordinated under the Repower EU strategy by the European Commission um, is maybe perhaps um, less present simply because there's less need um, and perhaps you could comment a bit on we're jumping to another topic here but um, we are talking geopolitics so I think that's acceptable um, you know LNG liquefied natural gas. Um, supplies? Um, from what I read is there's an oversupply that's partly contributing to the low gas prices. You know, Will that be sustained? Um, how important do you think that is, this development? Um, and will it have an impact on the speed of the transition?
3: Yeah. So there is um, an emerging oversupply, even more so I think from 2026 onwards when Qatar will bring a lot of new production capacity online. That might bring prices down, but I think hopefully the one thing that's been learned from this crisis is it's not only about the price in any given moment. um, It's about the volatility and the exposure. And if I can share with you my favorite piece of analysis from last year that actually came out of the UK from the Office for Budget Responsibility, right? The fiscal watchdog. They looked at, well, if the UK, yes, they're producing oil and gas themselves, but they're tied to the global market um, and market prices. If they don't transition away from gas faster and these types of, Price spikes will return. Then um, transitioning will actually be much much cheaper than not transitioning in terms of the um, external debt the country is piling up. So there is, I think, there is a start a recognition in also players that don't work on energy that this volatility that you get from fossil fuels and fossil fuel prices and that will be there even if we have an oversupply um, is actually damaging the economy. And I think that. It hasn't been mainstreamed yet that thinking, but I I think that was that was a real sign that things are changing, and hopefully will change as we enter election years and sort of a a new a new way of thinking.
2: If I may come in here, I think I totally agree with you. This volatility element—that's what you hear—and I would say, uh, in the EU's reaction in the documents around, you know, after the Russian uh, invasion, um, it wasn't. The, the focus was indeed still on the price level and not so much on this constant risk. Like, for example, yesterday I saw Linda Kalche tweeting about um, an an Italian LNG cargo ship that was blocked in the Red Sea by the Houthi, you know. So these kind of things, like there's constant uncertainty which has to be managed and I would hope that that, that that would be a bit more prominent in the future. Alisa, I wanted to ask you, would you agree with me also? Because I think it's a topic that you really worked on a lot over the years from different angles that we would also need a new definition of what we understand by energy security and EU policies. Because we actually still work with a quite old, more supply side, no uh, yes. volatility. What is it kind of definition? But since then we have you know the, we we've added the whole agenda on you know secure supply chains and that access to cheap renewables is actually a competitiveness factor. So what do you think about that? Because like I just saw the new NECPs and you know they have this pillar on energy security where we you no. Know, yeah. Would yeah. Be good to hear your ideas on this.
3: No, absolutely. Um, the energy security notion we have in Europe is super outdated, but I think it's it's, it's it's as much definition as institutional setup and who decides on what is energy security, right? So at the moment we have the people who own the pipelines um, and LNG terminals decide on what an energy secure future looked like. And so that obviously, is going to give you certain certain results. You're going to count your pipelines and say, actually, maybe we need one more. Um, and we have seen a gradual shift. I think the RePA EU communication last year, uh, sorry, a couple of years ago, was obviously starting to center also the demand side. So what we need to do is put the demand side at the very least on par with the supply side, um, for sure. Um, I think we're seeing some movement, but you know, there's no reason why we couldn't make the voluntary gas demand reduction target one that's permanent and that has a declining trajectory, right? Um, I think that would be shifting our energy security notion. I think the other um, piece, as you said, is around um, the volatility and recognizing the volatility and we don't have neither the modeling. I don't think the new EU um, climate target modeling is going to be looking into volatility, but we desperately need that analysis. Um, There is um, other challenges around energy security that are coming up around climate resilience, around um, cyber security as well, that we need to tackle much more proactively. And, and finally, um, a couple of points. One is, is sort of more techie on what's going on in Europe at the moment, but it's obviously also not going to be easy if you think about decarbonizing your power sector completely to 2035, which is what at least the G7 nations have signed up to. Um you've got to th- be thinking about the transition process and the end states um, and um, Germany at the moment is thinking about what are they going to be doing with all those gas power plants and do they need more? At the moment, they're defaulting to the we need more kind of um, solution. Which actually, I think what we're not having is a conversation about what kind of redundancy do we need and who should be paying for it? And is gas power plants really the only good answer we have? And I think the answer would be no, right? Um, But I think these kind of conversations we're not having at the moment. And the other one, um, linking back to the geopolitics piece is, um, you know, what we've seen over the last couple of years is, yes, Europe can afford in a crisis like that to just go and buy up all LNG (laughs) from the global market. Still comes at a very high cost to many people and also industry. But it can do that. And it did it in a way that it divert you know diverted supplies from Pakistan. Pakistan was left in a massive pickle. They they had long-term contracts, but they were breached. Um but this came at a geopolitical cost for Europe in a time where it actually needs friends. So I think what Europe really needs to pivot towards is work with other fossil fuel importers to say we're gonna collectively reduce our consumption going to send that signal to producers so they have less market power in a crisis situation and we ha- we're we going to be working on principles together to, um, to navigate crisis. So this is another aspect of energy security where I think Europe absolutely needs to change its philosophy otherwise it's going to be just left there at fighting on its own.
1: I think that's a really important point and especially um, at the beginning of the energy crisis, uh, it wasn't very much talked about. It was kind of celebrated as a huge success story. Look, we have replaced uh, you know piped Russian gas with LNG, um, and yes, it might come from some places that we usually don't do business with, but that's a crisis situation. But what was not talked about much is yeah, the countries that could not get access to um uh, that LNG, who had real shortages. Uh, and we then build this vast infrastructure in Europe, you know, with, I don't know how many terminals Germany built within a few months time um, that are now there. And, you know, they, they might become or they need to become stranded assets if we take the climate goals uh, seriously. Uh, and the speed at which we built those terminals is mind-blowing, given that usually those infrastructure projects take years to build, to get even planning permission. Um, but yeah, we, we were pretty good in putting up new fossil fuel infrastructure in record time. Um, so that that is still, for me, something that we really need to look back at um, quite critically. And I think even today, when you look at where the LNG is coming from, I think there are reports that some of that LNG is actually Russian gas. It's just repackaged as LNG um, with clever accounting tricks. But it's Russian gas. Um, And from an emissions perspective, clearly worse. um, And from a geopolitical perspective, um, just as bad as using the pipe Russian gas, I would argue. Um, So I think we have a lot of work to do and a lot of learnings to make sure we don't fall into the trap of thinking this has been resolved. I think we're far, far from a solution, aren't we?
2: Lisa, um, I wanted to pick up what you said, that you say Europe has to needs friends and a dialogue with the fossil producers. I wonder if that's realistic, and I'm basing that on my observations on the EU methane regulation, right? There was the, the big issue was, um, so we are off taker, we don't have significant production. Okay, so we buy on the market. Um, so we, we actually regulate someone else's gas and oil, right? More than anything. And that was a that was a difficult topic to be discussed. Um, like, can we allow ourselves to be picky, you know, because then basically member states were hesitant. And uh, I mean, the, the, the producers might just say, okay, you know, then just don't take our stuff and reduce if we come. You see what I mean? Do you think it's realistic given the role that Europe has in the global energy market?
3: Yeah, I mean, at the moment, Europe is still one of the biggest fossil fuel consumers globally, but you're right. I mean, ideally, that role will also decline and with it, the market power. Um, so this is why it's important that Europe talks to other fossil fuel consumers and align strategies around that, including on, on methane. Um, but I think it's also, you know, there's fossil fuel producers and fossil fuel producers and Europe has different relationships with different ones. And if you, if you look at some in the immediate neighborhoods of Europe and that's most important for also stability um and, and peace from a European point of view, Algeria, Egypt, um, they mainly expert to Europe, right? And so they are very dependent on European decisions. And so there is a lot of potential for, um, for dialogue. Um, and for Europe. what Europe needs to do is come up with clever ideas on how it can support their economic transition, which is not trivial for a fossil fuel producer. But one of the interesting ideas that um, happened at COP27 was Germany and the US and the EBRD partnered up to support Egypt to get put, um, build up renewables and retire inefficient gas generation, uh, which then means Egypt can export a little bit more gas without drilling more. It re- reduces its own subsidies bill at home and we have more renewables on the ground, right? So we need more of those kind of ideas. Um, and it's in the immediate European neighborhoods that Europe has leverage. And as I said, there's Colombia, there is some producers who are actually interested in a dialogue about the transition. The other key player in that is the International Monetary Fund that um, can actually really think about what are structural loans to support countries' economic transition as they try and find alternative sources of revenue. How you deal with the Saudi Arabias and UAEs of this world is that a very different kettle of fish. Um, But if you simultaneously organize with other consumers and try and help some producers transition, you're actually changing geopolitics already quite significantly.
0: Hi, everyone. David here again. Thank you for tuning in to Foresight Climate and Energy. Remember, your engagement shapes our content. So share your thoughts and keep the conversation going on our new website and app. Not a member yet? You can give us a try for 30 days for just €29. Go to foresightmedia.com or follow the link in the show notes. Now, back to our conversation. And so what should be the priorities then for the EU moving forward? We, we, we had the 2022 Repower, Repower EU strategy after the pandemic and um, the the conflict in Ukraine. Um, and that was more about kind of making sure there was a secure supply um, and, and less about sort of um at the energy transition how do we shift that now what should these priorities be we've got the EU parliament elections coming up a new commission uh expected uh to come in what is what what are the priorities there then to to start shifting the strategy towards a more energy transition decarbonisation pathway
3: yeah so there's a couple of internal pieces one is um on energy security like we discussed i think the eu needs to reshape how it takes decisions on energy dis- security and using what kind of definition. And that needs to reflect that we are um, in a world where the clean energy transition can deliver quite a lot of, um, of energy security and where staying hooked on fossil fuels um, actually means instability for the economy. Um, so that needs to be reflected in how we make decisions. That means it cannot be system operators alone who can, who take those decisions and make recommendations. So, first, I think there's an institutional piece. What exactly that looks like, I leave to the experts to design. But um, at the moment, not the right people are in the room, basically, and we're not using the right data. Um, and I think from there, quite a lot of um, things are probably going to follow. I think the other piece that's obviously high on the European and global agenda is industrial and economic competitiveness in the energy trans- uh, throughout the energy transition, where it's both an opportunity and a risk. There's a lot of obsession with risk of becoming too dependent on China, the future of the energy intensive industry. One of my favorite stats is, I mean, the energy intensive industry in Europe is responsible for a large share of emissions, 15%, but only 2% of GDP, right? <laughs> and if you look at that, they're monopolizing quite a lot of the conversation around Um, the future of EU economy. And actually, it's the services sector. It's small and medium enterprises that deliver a lot of the value that also need to decarbonize, and we have zero strategies for them. And if we started there, then I think we'd be managing the economic risk uh, um, a lot better. So these are a couple of internal pieces, Uh, apart from the obvious bits around deliver on the Green Deal as is, support in particular local actors and municipalities to draw up all the strategies they need to draw up yet and raise the money um they need for that because there's a lot of risk resp- in the in the framework we set up now there's a lot of responsibility for local institutions they're usually very low on capacity this is something the EU can support with the european investment bank can support with so there, there's obviously a, a very big delivery piece um and then there is the sort of global signaling where the EU needs to rebuild some trust that it lost over the last couple of years um throughout the the response to the Russian invasion and also actually COVID, um, where, as I said, helping others transition, putting the financial offer and the technical capacity support offer on the table will go a long way. After all, Europe is still more trusted than the US and others. Um, So, there is an opportunity here to find find more partners
1: lisa i would like to follow up on on, on that um a little bit i mean last last year really uh, most of european energy and climate legislation was sort of renegotiated a uh, recast of several directives um, and um, most of that is now complete you know there's still some loose ends but most of it is now complete so we have you know, new electricity market um design framework for europe uh we have a new buildings directive pretty much um yeah we um, have a renegotiate ETS, the uh, emissions trading system, uh, you yeah, know, new energy efficiency directive, new renewables uh, uh, directive. There's so many different pieces, um, all delivering on the green or green deal are supposed to deliver on that. And one of the, um, uh, pieces that came in quite late last year was the gas package. And I just want you to sort of comment on that a little bit because, um, I, I know you sort of spent considerable time, maybe more time than you wanted, um, on this particular, uh, piece of legislation. But how, in your view, does the gas package either support or not support the goals in the Green Deal or 55% carbon reduction, you know, that transition to clean energy that you mentioned? Could you just do a little bit of um, a little detour on the gas package? Yeah, you know, What is it? Why is it important? Um, and do you think it's fit for purpose?
3: Right. Um, great questions, Jan. Um, perhaps as a sort of, well, two pieces as as context. One, the, the benchmark, we started off this conversation with COP, right? We need, a, we need a signal now from Europe that it's transitioning away from fossil fuels. The gas package isn't really giving us that. Um, we need that now through things it's doing this year, like the the nationally determined contribution and new climate targets. Absolutely. Um, so that's already a first answer to your question. Is the gas package sufficient or not? It's not preparing us for that real decline in gas use that we need in in Europe. The other thing before I go into more detail is um this is a, a dinosaur legacy. Actually, sort of, yeah, it was dragging out and it sort of finalized um end of last year. But I remember it was already being prepared under the previous commission. And that was the part of the problem is that a lot of the studies we used um that informed the gas package and the framework were actually from like eight years ago, where the world looked considerably different. Um, and, you know, now we're in a world where renewables are super cheap and sort of mainstream tech and heat pumps are mainstream tech. Um, so that's a bit unfortunate that um, sort of that natural break. And so somehow the Green Deal never ended up affecting the gas package sufficiently. There was no, not a proper reset moment. Having said that, um so the gas package is a set of rules around um how the European gas market um is meant to function and some of the institutional setups um it was meant to sort of mirror some of the power legislation originally um it then became much more about um also hydrogen um and how would hydrogen be part of the same market or a different market as gas it's also a molecule but other than that actually um the reader across is, is limited i would say um and, um it also became an an entry point for some conversations around how do we operate a market that's declining as opposed to a market that's growing, which is the power market. So anyway, mirroring those two things doesn't make much sense because they're completely different. So the optimist in me says, well, what we got um, in 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 this final legislation at least is that first recognition that we need to start talking about decommissioning. Uh, certain parts of the gas network and that there's a little bit of a process that could start stimulating that. And I think that's important because if we don't do that, I mean, it's the it's the consumers that pay for gas networks, then they're going to be stuck with a, an oversized bill. Um, so we have to start off that conversation. We have something also on like LNG, long-term contracts, end dates, which I think is is a good signal, even though the <laughs> the end date is way too late. Um but at least we are starting to have that conversation, and then um, a recognition that the role that hydrogen play plays or will play in the market will be fundamentally different from from gas, and that hence the institutions need to be separate. The reality is, it's a bit more of a fudge, and I think uh, we need to be quite vigilant that a lot of the implementation um, is is fairly strict. <laughs> Um otherwise I think we still have a lot of vested interest conflicts between those who run gas networks and hydrogen networks and so on. Um so yeah, it wasn't it was a legacy, a dinosaur, it is not for, it is definitely not fit for purpose. Um I, I'd be interested, Michaela and Jan, where do we go from here if you have any thoughts? Um um it wasn't somehow part of the Green Deal, it was something slightly separate, which is a shame and a missed opportunity.
2: I'm amazed how well you summarized this complex package, actually. Thanks a lot for summarizing it. Uh, I think Agora would concur with much of you, what you said. And, you know, um, uh, when I jokingly interrupted you earlier on, uh, on Europe isn't phasing out of gas, it's phasing out of Russian gas. I think that's also one important. We haven't said that yet, right? We have said we need to get away from, from Russian gas. We haven't said we are getting away from gas. But interestingly, um in a, a call earlier this week, the ah, your colleagues, E three T actually, they had a look at a few um NECPs. Ah, it's funny, I didn't make the link. <laughs> Sorry, that wasn't planned. Um, um, so the National Energy and Climate Plans, which are revised for the first time after five years, and, and what they found was actually the reality is showing this decline. They looked in a few countries and came, added it up, and saw, wow, that did change compared to the report that were submit, submitted uh, five years earlier. We have not enough, but we have 30% reduction in gas demand in, in the countries they looked at by 2030. So what you just said, we need to get going on answering the question, how we do, how do we manage this? You know, how, how does it go until there are three people left in the gas network who decides all these questions? They are actually this is happening. Right. Even if the the, the commission hasn't declared it officially, that's that's the thing. And there's a bit of a, how do you say, cognitive dissonance kind of thing, because it's there. The problems are there already. it is We see it, right? But officially, we are transitioning away from Russia still,
1: right? <laughs> yeah, I mean, the, the, the problem is, I think, just beginning to be understood by regulators. Uh, we're now seeing discussions also in the UK, for example. There was a piece in the Financial Times last week on this very issue of shrinking numbers of customers, paying for the same size of a gas grid with the same sort of fixed cost. Um, and, uh, the regulator has now started to look at it uh, in in quite a bit of detail I mean, there isn't there's kind of a um a, a death spiral there isn't there because the the more expensive it gets to be on the gas grid, the more people will look at moving away from it and no longer using it because the alternatives in relative terms will become cheaper um and the main alternative as it is seen is to you know electrify rather than uh use gas. Uh, So there's a really difficult dynamic there, and if you don't start to manage that early on the problem will become a lot harder further down the line so now is the time to think about it because now we still have a lot of people who are connected to the gas grid and you can bring forward some of those costs I think it's called accelerated depreciation where you basically pay for the assets um, um, before you wanted to pay for them in the UK I think it's 45 years Um, any new investment in gas pipes will be paid back over 45 years if you you add 45 years to where we are today that takes us yeah, you know, to what almost um, um, you know 70, uh, 2070, uh, which clearly is not uh, sustainable given the climate goals. So there, there's a, there's a big question that regulators and governments now need to need to look at. But uh, yeah, I don't think anyone has the answers yet. But it's good that we have the discussion.
3: It just makes me think that um, um, what you said earlier about targets. Um, this is why targets are still important because if you just leave it, I mean, the reality is we are getting off gas not fast enough the problem is if you don't have an explicit target you do it in a messy way and the wrong people pay for the wrong things and we're still overbuilding. right a target aligns minds um and that's what we need that's why we also really need the eu to start specifying this is where we want to be in the power sector this is where we want to be in the heat sector but actually for gas you need a target across because all sectors use gas and um the infrastructure brings this all together. So I think a key consideration for the next commission will be about what is a an orderly transition away from gas and what building blocks need to be put in place. You mentioned um, depreciation of assets. The German regulator has just put forward a bit of a, I think, a proposal on faster depreciation of um, gas network costs. Again, you need to make sure there's a cutoff date so we don't overbuild and then build back to, to the consumer. Um, but it's great to see um those com- conversations emerging. One thing I maybe also Jan and Mikaela I don't know if I've missed this, but I think we also don't have a vision for what the gas grids at European level should look like in 2030, 2035, 2040, sort of scaling down, right? And what are some of the choices av- involved along the along the way. We obviously have the the plans put forward by system operators, but they are they're sort of biased and not necessarily always in line with what the reality we're seeing on the ground. So I wonder whether that's just a little bit a gap in the discussion, or whether it's just something I haven't, I haven't come across.
0: Is the phase out of gas, you know, is a bit more than we expected? It's not as, as fast and fast enough as we'd hoped. But is that partly down to market dynamics and and private businesses realizing that it's easier and cheaper to go to electricity? And it's regulators and politicians and policymakers need to catch up. With the sort of with the industry itself, or is it a result of good regulation and, and good uh, planning on, on the on the legal and public sector side?
3: Oh, I might also just kind of it might be interesting to the listener, but the the to just have the numbers. So, what the EU has mm. um, has pledged under Repower EU as in sort of this is what we want to do to get away from gas. That would be a fifty percent, so a halving of gas demand by mm. twenty thirty. Um, what its Green Deal legislation roughly would do and what we feel like we're possibly on track for is a 30% reduction in gas demand. And what we would need to do Mm -hmm. in climate terms, I think, um, Michaela, this is from Agora's study, is a 50% reduction. So it's pretty much in line with the sort of repower. So this is just to give you a bit of a feel for how far off the target we are, but also how deep, it's still a third to 2030, how deep the cuts are likely to be. Um, I think... A lot of it is driven, I think, bottom up. I mean, that's also often a bit of a legacy of previous legislation, but I I was amazed by, in terms of installation of solar panels and heat pumps, this is citizen action, right? This is a lot of individuals choosing to do certain things that we've seen over the last couple of years. Um, I think there is then a bit of a sort of step change where you need regulation, where especially in industry um, that uses a lot of gas for high temperature heat and for um, feedstocks, you need upfront investment cycles. But also, and this connects to some of the politically more difficult um, conversations around the energy transition, not everyone can choose at this point in time to put a heat pump in. And some of the instruments we put in place, like the Social Climate Fund, are unfortunately instruments that are compensate people exposed for higher carbon prices, but they don't enable them to Build the heat pump early on to not even incur that cost, right? Yeah, so yeah, yeah. there's, I think, again, a change in philosophy and approach we need in the next commission to unlock that next depth of transformation on on the gas side of things.
2: Just one uh, one point, uh, since we all uh, always get very involved when once gas is on in the topic. But actually, um, yesterday also at our event, we need to phase out of all fossil fuels. We need to phase out of coal, which we started once on a, you know, we started off. But yeah, then last year ended up with market design, allowing also support for very high emission coal plants. So our first phase out, it's okay-ish. We discussed that on an earlier episode. And then there is the topic we don't talk, I mean, we talk a lot about gas And that's important because we just saw how many problems there are to be solved. But oil also has to be phased out, right? And I think there's absolutely no discussion on that either, right? I
3: I very much agree. Um, And it's important. Um, Oil is, for most fossil fuel producers, the cash cow, right? Gas is the geopolitical leverage because of the pipelines, and you can't, the, the markets are more fragmented. Um, So there's less substitution, but oil is the cash cow. So in terms of the political and geopolitical transition, we need to tackle this. Um, I think um, there's a lot of reliance on that electric vehicles were sorted, Um, right? And obviously there is a big uptake, um, but again, it's about who can choose that. But also we cannot afford to replace every car one-to-one with an EV, so we need a better public transport offer that requires public intervention. So yes, I absolutely agree. We need to phase out of all fossil fuels. And there are are these stepping stones where, to some extent, you can rely on the market to drive things, but then you need to sort other things. And this brings me to the point, I love talking about fossil fuels and fossil fuel phase out, and we need a lot of discussion on that and how to do that well. Um, But we need to spend a considerable time talking about phasing in the clean energy solutions, right? This is why this podcast also exists because this is the, this is the hard thing is building things and turning things off is actually still much easier so um and this is why we need again need to talk about grids we need to talk about demand side flexibility and digitizing grids and we need to talk about how system operators need to become much more comfortable at using digital technologies and having the right skills in a house to do that otherwise um we cannot operate this energy system so um that's sort of the other thing i think we we really need to spend the time on on the things that are bringing us most value
2: politically might be even more difficult to f- get rid of something than it is to build something because it's you you can still sell as a politician the positive story right and you said it at the beginning the guest part was always a bit um, ambiguous in the green deal because it would have required us to tell a story about things that have to stop right um, so i think politically this this is much more it's difficult that.
3: and i think to say. so basically at the moment it's still possible for decision makers to just say okay let's keep all options open i don't i'm not going to turn off the gas tab here yet until i've build all the clean stuff right and that to some extent psychologically i can also understand right um but actually the cost of keeping all options open start is starting to spiral like jan said um onto the consumer um onto um we're now in a world with higher interest rates money isn't that cheap anymore we cannot like just build all things and then at some point stop we must sort of take some strategic bets and i think that's that's the story also that needs to Needs to change, and I think the best strategic bet is is clean energy.
0: How is this changing the world of energy policymaking? You know, all three of you work uh, in in policymaking and sort of think tank and, and that sort of area. How is this new geopolitical reality that's emerging, um, the new world order, perhaps you could call it, um, affecting how you do energy policymaking? Are you are you closely watching these impacts and and, and altering? The policies that you are putting out there, putting forward, um, or is it still solely focusing on actually this is the best route to a decarbonized economy?
1: I mean, I can have a try to go at answering that question. I I don't think the crisis that we've we had with energy and the geopolitics that emerged from that have fundamentally changed the. Pretty strong consensus within the energy sector now. What the solutions are, you know, the solutions have been clear before, uh, and they're clear now. Yeah, and in a nutshell, I think we're talking about um, you know, a number of things here. One is to use energy more efficiently, so improve energy efficiency. Secondly, um, to decarbonize the energy that we still need, um, uh, and thirdly, electrification is is a key. Uh, lever, you know, to move away from combusting fossil fuels um, to using renewable electricity uh, directly. So I don't think that has changed fundamentally, and it's reflected in still many of the strategy documents um, from governments at EU level. I think what has changed is perhaps the way the discussion is being framed. You know, it's no longer just about reducing carbon emissions. It's very much an energy security discussion. And we talked about price volatility before. Um, I think much of the debate is now really about protecting ourselves, making an investment um, to protect ourselves from those price shocks. Um, and that has not been a discussion, at least in, in my, uh, during my career, because you know, fossil fuel prices were pretty cheap. Gas was cheap and we had lots of it from Russia. So I think that has really changed. Um, and if anything, uh, I think it's been a boost. Uh, I know Michael Liebreich wrote a piece early on. I think uh, after the invasion of Ukraine, and he predicted that this event will lead to a boost of the clean energy transition. And I think he's right. You know, maybe the boost isn't quite as big as we wanted it to be. Maybe we're not moving fast enough. But I think overall, I think it 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 has definitely created more impetus, um, not less.
3: I think a couple of things I'd say is yeah. I mean, we're now at the straight state stage of the transition where we're no longer adding marginal stuff to an existing system. Like we're no longer adding a bit of renewables on the side, but the whole system needs to change. And that means we need to have quite different conversations with more people, with different types of institutions. And we have to recast institutions. And um, I, I don't know whether you've discussed this in this podcast beforehand, but it's very interesting in the UK that they're setting up a, what's I think now being called a national energy system operator say, okay, we need we need an institution that's quite independent, that looks at the future energy planning and that clarifies a few assumptions so everyone can get in line behind that. Um so we need to also think about the institutions a lot harder. Um and and instruments like carbon pricing, etc., they can still be relevant, but they are marginal instruments. They're not instruments that change the heart of how the energy system works. And so I think that in terms of energy policy making means um means we have to think harder we also i think the other thing is we cannot af- afford to repeat the same mistakes so things around experiences around rolling out boiler bans or heat pump like we really have to learn from where maybe we've also designed or policy has been designed badly and make sure we learn from that and take that to heart and be, are quite fast about that i think that's the other we don't have the time and also not the political capital to waste um, to to make those mistakes multiple times
0: and do you see the we've spoke in the last episode of what matters about the the sheer number of elections that are happening this year um, not including the the obviously the European uh, parliament elections as well, uh, which is again another element that we have to consider do you see Energy policymaking as influencing those elections and influencing the electorate, or do you see the shifting attitudes within the electorate? Obviously, there is a bit of a, a rise about uh, of populism and and protectionism. Do you see them shaping energy policymaking up to twenty thirty and beyond?
3: I am going to be. Um, I'll be very interested in what also Jan and Michaela have to say on this, but I think. Um, so last year was quite interesting because two things. One is um, we, in the UK, actually the UK Prime Minister Rishi Sunak tried to make I think more than just energy net zero a topic to regain some voters. Didn't work. Um, so I think um, I think there is always an attempt, and in some places it works, but I don't think it's going to be the necessarily the big bet. I think what. Again, going to my point around mistakes is what, um, this is what politicians will try and capitalize on is if if, if you make mistakes and design policy badly. Um, other than that, I think energy transition will be very much wrapped up in conversations and decisions around competitiveness, foreign policy, um, energy security, but more at that level. And The other thing that I thought was quite interesting is, I mean, we had the Polish elections With a change of government, which is very significant. But I think, underneath that, even more significant, Poland has started to attract a lot of clean energy investment. So, this is going to change the makeup of this country um, and the interests of this country in the long term um, investment in heat pump manufacturing, into wind manufacturing. And in terms of especially the European balance, where you've had that, usually that schism between East and West, I, I anticipate that this is, we need much more effort on this, but this can be leveled out because. We are seeing those those actual investments flowing into the region.
1: Do we have time to to uh, add to that, David, or should please. we? No, please do. Yeah, yeah. Um, I mean, it's yeah. The politics of this are difficult. There's there's no doubt, and um, I think it's not just badly designed policy. I think what's important is that a lot of the debates that we're seeing in the media um, is not just there because some journalist is kind of reporting on it. We know um, from various investigative journalists uh, who have looked at this that some of the stories that we're seeing, some of the negativity that we're seeing, some of the backlash that we're seeing, uh, is funded and is coming from vested interest groups. You know that's been documented. There are even PR agencies. There's one in the UK, for example, that is, uh, you know, on their website they were saying they're proud that they. Um, uh, got people um, outraged over heat pumps um, by putting out really negative articles in the media. So some of this is not happening by chance um, and we just have to recognize that. Um, but I think we also, in, in, in how we design policies, need to do a better job in anticipating how some of that debate might play out in public and really prepare much better than, than we have. I think the German example is a good one um and and have have the answers ready because yeah some of these things are difficult and they're not easy and people will have questions and if if policymakers aren't ready to to answer those questions then you know some people will use that as an opportunity to derail the policy altogether. Um so I think that is I think and for me is a quite an important point. As we move faster, yeah there is there is pushback and we've seen that before. I mean there's there's a great book um which I Uh, keep recommending it's called innovation and its enemies and it's looking at totally other sectors not just energy but the incumbents always try to stop innovation uh, because it's bad for their business so there's some really valuable lessons to be learned from that
2: just one quick gap is just i think i i i agree it's it's more than just be careful not to make a mistake i think there's this there's an ideological debate shaping up around it. And just to to show what that looks like, um, I I saw the PPE manifesto for the elections and one of their requests is uh, take back the combustion engine rules for 2035 that were agreed upon in a, you know, uh, it, 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 they were negotiated between 27 member states European parliament for two years almost they wanted and to be um <laughs> yeah <laughs> that's the proposal on the table but, is yeah. take this back
0: absolutely okay. so, and that's just that's purely just t- to win votes and to be to be divisive and to be to show that they're different from from the uh people that are already in power i think
3: i assume so but they should talk to rishi sunak
0: they should absolutely uh, really interesting
2: maybe do can facilitate this <laughs> mm-hmm. we should we should we'll
0: get everyone on a podcast um, before we go uh, one thing one thing we will ask all of our guests is if they could look into their crystal ball what does the energy transition landscape look like in 10 to 20 years time
3: yeah let me just get my crystal ball out um... <laughs> mm-hmm. you no. have
2: an actual crystal ball
3: <laughs> no, wow okay nice one um, yeah actually I mean I was thinking about a very, um very difficult and interesting question. Um, I think the the few things I thought might be interesting to highlight, I mean, much more fun and interactive hopefully will be the energy sector and people will be dealing with energy in so many different ways um, in their households with via their vehicles um, and have more agency over that. And I think I, I'm mentioning that because it's really important because we need system operators to help people do that. Um, and make it easy for them. Not everyone wants to kind of fiddle around with their washing machine and timing. So that's one element. Um, much Hopefully, much less exposed to global win- whims and volatility because we've we've made a big um, progress in, in divorcing the economy from fossil fuels. And I mean, lots of people talk about China, independence on China, but most of the stuff we import from China in terms of energy we don't then immediately burn and have to you know import again like we're doing with fossil fuels but we actually gain, get a bit of a longer term value from it so i think it's also very different and the the biggest question mark for me is the the role of like how balanced will the transition have been is it will it just have been like the eu the us china and a couple of others or will it you know will other major economies but also smaller economies have had the chance to come along, and only then we can also save the climate. So that's my crystal ball.
0: Yeah, fascinating, uh, Lisa. Thank you so much. Uh, before we go, then just quickly run round the table to see what caught my eye uh, in the last week, uh, Jan. What caught your eye?
1: I know we usually don't do um, uh, uh, um, self-publication adverts on this podcast, but I might make an exception. It's not my own report, but my colleagues have spent a lot of time, um, most of last year, and they have written a report uh, on how flexibility can be made available to uh, all customers, not just wealthy customers, but all customers, including low-income families, um, for example. And um, it's called Flexibility for All. And you find it on the RAP website. I think it makes a great reading. um, And it's the first of its kind, as far as I know. Really interesting. Yeah, absolutely.
0: We need to provide everyone opportunities to benefit from providing flexibility to the grid. Uh, Lisa, what caught your eye this week?
3: Um I've seen someone post about the heat pump sales numbers in Germany and thought they were absolutely fascinating. Um, 50% market growth two, two years in a row. Um, this is going to eat into German gas demand.
0: Absolutely. Uh, hence the need for a uh, policy that works to phase gas out in a in a fair and equal manner. Uh, Michaela, what I about you? I
2: usually don't do self-promotion in this podcast. <laughs> but I will do an exception. Um I think it might be nice reading for anyone to have a look at what we suggest as the twenty policy initiative for the for the next, for the decisive decade as we say what I like particular about it that we have started to look beyond energy and for example included agriculture and food also and transport, which is really urgently needed so. We have some ideas on that as well and worked with those colleagues. Um, and since I find these topics also fascinating, I learned a lot even. On that.
0: Perfect. Thank you very much. Um, and for me, well, there was this, I'm going to, I'm going to have two um, very quickly. The, the, uh, There was a report in the New York Times that came out uh, late last night about the Biden administration pausing a decision on whether to approve what would be the largest natural gas export terminal in the United States, uh, which could delay it past the November election uh, and also put 16 other proposed terminals in jeopardy. Uh, So I guess that reverts back to a little bit to our conversation on, on... Working with other suppliers of gas and seeing what that could do uh, could have a huge impact there on the U.S. Uh, energy um, market. Um, and then the other one, of course, was the yet another delay, yet another increase in the bill at the Hinckley Point C nuclear plant in the U.K. Um, True. Just
2: that came another- through this week, yeah. That yeah. came
0: through this week, yeah, putting more pressure on the UK government to find more money for it, um, even though, uh, yeah, they, they'll, they'll cancel a rail project uh, because it's too expensive, but they won't cancel a nuclear project. Um, I'll leave that there. So, yeah, two really uh, interesting stories there that came out in the last week. So, sadly, that's all we have time for today. My thanks to Lisa, Michaela, Jan for joining us today, as well as our producer, Kira, and our audio editor, Robert. If you have any questions for the team or wish to add to the conversation, why not join us on our new Foresight website and app? Visit www.foresightmedia.com or follow the link in the show notes to get a one-month free trial with full access to the site, and let us know your thoughts on energy policy making uh, Until next time, thanks for listening.